What a nice man. Always keeps us up on what's going on. Good morning, everyone. It's good to, good to have you with us this morning as we are all looking forward to this week. And uh, I, I was thinking of the number of groups that we're going to have this evening for this night of worship. We, we may, one of these days, need to invest in a rotating stage, you know, just you know, this one group at a time, just keeps it rotating, you know. But we'll, we, we, there's a lot of other things. We're going to get into God's Word as well tonight. And, let's, and re, in reality, we have all the time to do it. I mean, we're not going to be here till midnight, you know. It'll be within the, the defined uh, parameters of, of time, but we're going to have a good time. So we, we always urge you to, to bring family and friends to occasions like this, especially around the holidays. And, and then especially on... on um, on Thursday night. By the way, just a reminder that there's no, I know that Pastor Tom's gone over this, but, but an extra reminder, no Wednesday night service because we're going to be doing our candlelight on Thursday, Thursday at 5.30, and then tonight is 6, okay? So we'll review at the end of the service here just to make sure that you all got the, got the scoop, all right? Let's turn to John chapter 6, verses 22 through 33. It says uh, 22 to 40. We'll eventually get that in part 2. This is part 1 of this teaching on the bread of life. And you might be saying, we've talked a lot about the bread of life already, haven't we? Uh, yes, we have. And uh, the fact of the matter is that from the very beginning of this chapter, and by the way, this chapter is 71 verses long, and practically every verse of this chapter <clears throat> does in some way reflect back and looks back at the first 12 verses of this chapter that deal with Jesus feeding upwards of twelve to 15,000 people with a small lunch of a young little boy. The miracle that took place on that hillside near the Sea of Galilee. And a lot has already been said about bread and the bread that was, that was given to those who ate and the, and the bread who was the one who was giving the bread, who is the bread of life. But today there is a, a, a need to understand what is taking place after that great event. A few things. First of all, at the very end of the feeding, the disciples gathered together 12 basketfuls of bread. And it's significant for us to remember that those 12 represented those 12 apostles. And the implication of all of that is that those 12 took each, ba each basket for themselves for a reason, that God was reminding them of the power of his Son, who is the Son of God and God the Son. The power not only to give bread for physical means, but to be the bread for spiritual means, the bread of life, eternal life. And then we saw that after this took place, that Jesus, perceiving that all these men, the 5,000 men that were numbered, were the ones that saw that, that Jesus was so, uh, so much the, you know, the, the fulfilling all of the things that the Scripture says about Messiah, that he has to be the Messiah. Therefore, they were ready to force him, in a, in a way, and take him to become the king. Now, he was already the king, but it wasn't time to proclaim that yet. So Jesus tells his disciples, get in the boat, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and I'll meet you there. And he went up to pray. We also know that when the disciples went out on the boat, it was already nighttime and there was no light and, and uh, so uh, a storm started and again, we saw that as a pop quiz, as we said last time. It was their pop quiz to trust the Lord. If the implication was that they took the baskets of bread, that the, they had the bread in there to show that Jesus was able to do uh, more than they could ever imagine because he was who he was not only the Son of God, but God the Son, yet they feared in the storm. And Jesus walks out to them on the water, to the boat, calms the storm, brings them to the seaside and to safe harbor. And that's where we are today. 
what else can we continue on in this particular theme? But of what takes place with the people who come looking for Jesus. So this is now the following day. And we're told that in verse 22 that says the day following. When the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there. Save that one whereinto his disciples were entered. And that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat. But that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread after that the Lord had given thanks, speaking, of course, of the, the day of the miracle. And when the people therefore saw that uh, Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping, which means they got in little boats and, and they went to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? In other words, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. <clears throat> Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him has God the Father sealed. So I should go without saying then, that man has a gnawing, insatiable hunger within for both the physical and the spiritual. He hungers for both food and material things, but he also has an appetite for the spiritual. Now you might be saying, really? Really? Well, stay with me for just a moment. Is it any wonder that there are so many religions throughout the world today and have been since man left the surroundings of the garden, sometimes one religion upon another within the same fundamental philosophical and theological basis, just a religion built upon another religion built upon another religion within the same context of what they are being religious about. And this not just in Christianity, but I mean, you can go down every religion of the world. And within these various religions, and let's not exclude atheism, since humanism has its own individual gods wrapped up in the self. But within those various religions, there are desires for the basic needs, for peace and love and joy. But what is quite significant is that most of man's time and energy are spent in seeking to satisfy his hunger, both spiritually and or physically and spiritually, whether man believes that or not, this is what they're hungering for. Let's remember that those who are without Christ in the world seek to satisfy these same hungers, but in the area of being fed spiritually, they are eventually trying to feed a dead spirit. They are trying to feed a dead spirit. Now, it, it is important to understand that when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become alive spiritually. You have to acknowledge the fact that you are dead spiritually and need to be alive in Christ. That is why Jesus talked about being born again. In fact, the Apostle Paul uh, clearly makes this point in his letter to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2. So I'd like for you to turn there in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to read here what it says, what Paul says about this issue that we're dealing with today, about hungering for things that are spiritual as well as things that are physical. Paul begins by saying, and you has he quickened. Now, may I, may I say to you that the phrase he has quickened literally means he's made you alive. He says, you, he has made you alive. What's the implication? That you were dead. Not dead physically, because as I can tell today, the majority of you are alive physically. Well, I think you are. I mean, you're showing signs. I see signs of life out there. 
We're alive, we're alive physically, aren't we? Every one of you, even if you're a little sleepy, you're alive. And by the way, it's, it's 1140, just to let you know. But Paul says you, he has quickened, he's made you alive who were dead. You were dead in, in trespasses and sins. So you all see that. Before we came to Christ, we were dead spiritually. Then he says in verse 2, wherein, time, wherein in time past, you walked according to the course of this world. So you were physical, but you were walking a course, you were walk, walking a path, you were walking on a road that is of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, speaking of, of Satan or the, or the devil, uh, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So those who are against Christ, who don't have anything or, they, or don't want anything to do with Jesus or the, with God or the Bible or, 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 or the, the things of God, you know, they're, they're, they're walking, they're alive, but they're dead spiritually. And their, their tendencies are to be disobedient to the things of God. So then he says in verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of, our, of the flesh and of the mind. So he's saying to them, listen Christian, you were once this way. You were dead uh, spiritually. And you, your conversation or your conduct in times past was in the lust of your flesh. Everything, though you were trying to be somewhat spiritual in one thing or another, you were st everything was feeding the flesh. You had the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You were just like the world. And as children of wrath, meaning that if you did not change, if things did not change in your life, you would then be separated eternally from God. Which brings to mind two words. In the next verse, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, but God, how those two words change things in people's lives. They changed your life and mine. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, they changed our lives, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us then we begin to see the importance of that love of Christ and the love of God for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins. Even when we were dead. The acknowledgement of being dead in our sins. Has he quickened us or has quickened us together with Christ? He's made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, folks. Right now, physically, we're here. On this earth, more specifically, more specifically, we're here in this room. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we're already in heaven. He has made us to sit in heavenly places. He's raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ. And then he says this in verse 7. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see what happens when we are made alive in Christ. So there is a significance. There's a significance to being alive or to being dead spiritually. Now, how does this all apply to our text today? Well, there is a need that these people had that had listened to Jesus that were fed by Jesus miraculously, there was a need for them, though, to recognize their hunger. Recognizing hunger is, a, is of great importance in this study this morning. Going back, if you will, to our text in verse 22, and we'll read down through verse 25, 
And once again, it's just, just reminding us of what's taking place. The day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one wherein, uh, wherein to his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread. After that, the Lord had given thanks. In other words, that very same place, they went to look for Jesus and didn't find him there. Uh, so the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples. They also took shipping and they got into their boats and they came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. So this, is, this tells us what's going on. This tells us where their hearts are. This tells us what they're, what they're doing, what they're wanting to do. And then it says, and when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Now, I want you to notice something. When they find Jesus, they don't go up to Jesus and they don't, and, and they don't go up and say to him, oh, Jesus, whoa, it's wonderful to see you. It's wonderful. We, we, we just want to come and worship you and rejoice in you and, and acknowledge who you are. We, we're just so excited, you know. No, they say, Hey, when did you get here? Right? Totally different attitude. After he has shown himself to be who he is, the Mashiach of Israel, the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. The thousands of people who had heard Jesus preach and then were miraculously fed, they had recognized a particular hunger. They had recognized a particular hunger. Consider that it was a common belief, as we learned last time, that the Messiah would give manna from heaven even as Moses had done. In fact, it was thought that Messiah would give more than Moses had ever given. And the people were so convinced, the men especially, had, were so convinced that Jesus was the Messiah that they were ready to, to lay hold of Jesus and make him king. In this very desire, they acknowledged their need for, for Messiah. Now, it's a good thing, isn't it, to recognize that need for Messiah. But, but keep that thought for just a moment. They had need and they knew it. But confessing their need was not a problem for them. Because they also noted Jesus' absence. They noticed that Jesus wasn't around. And there was only one boat docked at shore and the disciples had taken it to cross the lake. But Jesus hadn't joined them for he had stayed behind. Yet he did join them at night when he got out to the boat, calmed the sea, and brought him to shore. I want you to consider the lessons, though. I want you to consider the lessons that we find here in this text. The people knowing that, that they had a need, the people knowing they had need, wanted their need met. They wanted their need met. Jesus had proclaimed that he could meet their need, but he was gone. Therefore, their need was going to go unmet unless they could find him. So I want you to think about this thought. I'm going to give you a thought. I want you to meditate upon this thought. Man has a great need for God's Messiah, Jesus. Man has a great need for the Messiah. But man must acknowledge that need. Man must acknowledge that need. Folks, for those of you who have come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know this because of of that day that you were presented the gospel. And God had prepared your heart for this day. But nonetheless, you had been presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. What it meant for Jesus to have come to this earth, to take upon himself flesh, and then to take that flesh onto the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and to die on that cross on your behalf, and to shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins, and to be buried with your sins, and three days later to rise again from the dead. I mean, these things, when we, came to, when we came to realize what Jesus had done for us, what was the first thing that came to mind? We began to realize we were sinners. We acknowledged our sin. We acknowledged our need for a Savior. Well, this should be no different this holiday season than during the rest of the year. And to you as believers in Jesus Christ, I ask, are we giving people the gospel of Jesus Christ to come to the realization of their great spiritual need? 
Are we prayerfully preaching Christ and Him crucified so that the lost would come to that realization of their need and seek the Lord with all their heart? Are we doing that? We have great opportunity to do that. This week, next week, and not just this holiday season, wonderful time to do it, but every day of the year to let people know about Jesus. Did you notice how diligent these people were in seeking Jesus? I mean, they were looking all over for him. And finally, when they find him, what do they tell him? You, when did you get here? I mean, you got here, you, you left us, and we had to find you. A little bit of a different attitude than the way they should have been seeking after Jesus because they would have known from Isaiah 55 verses uh, 5 and 6, or I should say 6 and 7, Isaiah 55, the understanding of seeking after the Lord. We're told in Isaiah 55 verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Now if you just stop there, I mean that's a, that's a good thing to understand about seeking the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him, call upon him while he's near. That's good, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's, it's scripture. It's good. But we can't forget the next verse. Because in the next verse it says, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But you see, this sets up the understanding of what is the motive of our seeking after Jesus. What is our motive for seeking after God and Christ? We come to a little better understanding when we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 about faith, where it says, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And we are to diligently seek him. Even after we have sought him for salvation, every day as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to diligently seek him in faith, in trust. <coughs> Excuse me. Trusting the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength every day for every need that we have, both physical and spiritual. Trusting in the Lord. Let me give you again what I tell you is the understanding of faith so that you, you don't get bogged down by, by you know, the, the aspect, uh, you know, this, uh, this aspect of faith kind of, kind of being hard, hard to understand. We can, we can understand trust actually better. We can trust the Lord because we're told to trust the Lord. Having faith is having a belief in, a trust in, a complete dependency upon Him. So when the Scriptures tell us to have faith in the Lord and to trust the Lord, we, what we're supposed to do is to put the full weight of our faith, of our trust, and our dependency upon him. So without that, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. That's the first thing. We must believe that he is. And that his, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So now getting back to the people, the people question the absence of Jesus because in their minds... The Messiah was to give them manna from heaven to meet their needs just as Moses had done, only more so. Messiah is supposed to give us even more than what Moses gave the children of Israel. And so they couldn't understand why Jesus would leave them, especially if he was the true Messiah. Now this, is, this thought is crucial here. So listen carefully. If Jesus is really Messiah... Why does he so often seem absent and far away, especially in times of trouble? Now, I want to emphasize the word seem. If Jesus is really Messiah, why does he often, so often seem absent and far away? I didn't say he was, did I? Because in fact, Jesus himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always. Right? Okay. So that, we, we should know that. Even if we f don't feel him near, he's near. See, that's, that's the reason why we shouldn't base things on our feelings. We should base things on faith and trust. I trust that God is with me. I might not feel he's with me, but I know he's with me because he said he is. 
So if he's really Messiah, why, why does he sometimes often seem, seem far away? Now, here, let me say this. If this question has bothered you, you should be attending our Wednesday night study in the book of Habakkuk. You should be, all right? So I'm telling you right now, if, if, you, if this question bothers you, come on Wednesday night. But not this Wednesday night, because this coming Wednesday night, we're not having Bible study. Uh, you can come to the Spanish, because they're having theirs. Yeah, but Thursday. But, but then the following week, we, we're back in Habakkuk, okay? You got it? All right. Commercial time. This was commercial, just... To let you know. Because in the book of Habakkuk, the prophet himself was having the, this same problem. God, you seem so far away. God, you're, you're, you know, your people, and, and I know that they need to be judged, but why are you judging them through the Babylonians? And you know, he goes on and on. And God answers him and assures him that he hasn't forgotten that. So, again, commercial. Maybe another way of framing this same thought is this. If there is, one, if there is a one true God, and, and if Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God, why is the world in so much trouble, and why are people suffering? Why won't the Messiah put himself right in the midst of all this turmoil and chaos and meet man's need, and meet it immediately? Well, the answer is what this passage is all about. Now, we should all know that Jesus did do that. That's what this season is all about. Jesus did come. Galatians 4 verse 4 says that in the fullness of time, he came. The fullness of time was that at the very center of all of the problems of this universe, Jesus came to this earth at the exact moment that he was needed. Not a minute too soon, not a minute too late. The fullness of time. So, the people had recognized a particular hunger, but now Jesus was going to do something else. He was going to reveal motives. He was going to reveal motives. What is the motive of the heart in seeking after Jesus? If you'll go to verses 26 and 27 of our text, it says, Jesus answered them. Now, this is the wonderful thing about our Lord, you know. These, these people were saying to him, when, when did you get over here? You didn't tell us. You, you know. Jesus calmly gives them an answer, but not the answer that they were expecting. Jesus answered them, and he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Verily, verily, truly, truly, truthfully, truthfully, listen to this truth, Listen to this truth. That's what that phrase means. Listen to this truth. I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. And then he says in the next verse, labor not for the meat which perishes. Labor not for the meat that perishes but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. So he says, work not for the meat that perishes, but work for the meat that produces or endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him has God the Father sealed. Jesus stressed to these people that their motives in seeking him for all intents and purposes were corrupt. The motives in seeking Jesus were corrupt. This is what he is revealing about them seeking him. And, and by the way, Jesus was really clear, really plain. Didn't have to be misinterpreted. It was just very clear. You did not seek me because you saw the miracles. You're seeking me because you ate the bread and you were filled. He used a strong attention-getting statement, verily, verily, listen, listen, to reveal to them what their motives were. And they needed to acknowledge this about their motives. They not only needed to acknowledge their need, but they needed to acknowledge their motives. Man, for the most part, man seeks a Savior, Messiah, but not to worship and serve Him. He seeks a Messiah for what He can get out of Him. 
And I think it is sad when that particular kind of attitude and message gets into the church. And we begin to tell people, you can come and get whatever you want from Jesus in this life or for this life. But do you come to worship him? Do you come to praise him? Have you worshiped and praised him today for your salvation, for saving you from eternal separation from God, from damnation? Have you, have you praised him for saving you from all of those things? Whether he gives you one thing in this world or not. You see, what we, what we have seen scripturally and what we will see prophetically is that man is interested in getting his needs met, whether by someone human or divine. And see, I mentioned looking at things prophetically because one day, yet to come, but, it, but the spirit of this is already happening. People are, are looking for someone to bring peace to this earth. The Jewish people today, constantly, no matter what the, the news media says, the Jewish people want peace. Eventually they want peace, and they'll tell you they want peace at any cost. And this is the, the open door to an antichrist, a person named antichrist. The Bible already teaches us that there is already an antichrist spirit, but there is going to be a person who will take on this role of being an antichrist. And they will hear him and follow him before they follow Jesus. And that is something that Jesus has already prophesied in the previous chapter in, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. I could look it up for you and just read it to you if you'd like. Because I think we should not miss out on what he was saying. Where he talks about, uh, you can go back to verse 20, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from uh, death into life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they shall hear, they shall live. For he, as the Father has life in himself, so has he given unto the Son to have life in himself, has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is, not, he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. And that all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Uh, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And he goes on, says, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek uh, not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself and witness is not true, there is another that beareth witness of me. And he goes on and talks about John the Baptist and being, you know, that, uh, uh, that particular... Uh, witness. But then later on he says in verse 39, search the scriptures wherein them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. I receive on, not honor from men but I know you that you have not the love of God in you. I come in my father's name and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. So that's the prophetic aspect. He says, you know, you're, you're going to receive someone. You, you won't receive me but you're going to receive somebody else. So we're looking ahead. That's going to happen. That's the whole point there. Pardon me for taking a little bit of time on that. But I wanted to clarify that. I've, I've just stated the, the issue uh, in the previous uh, studies. But, but here today, I just want you to see. And maybe somebody just needs, needs to see that assurance from the scriptures about that. The man is interested in getting his needs met, whether by someone human or someone divine. But the major problem with those who see God with a dead spirituality or with a dead spirit is that man is interested in himself, not in acknowledging and honoring Jesus to be Lord and not serving him and making him known to a lost world. And the focus of the crowd was on how wonderful it was to be saved from hunger and to have needs met. So here was a Savior Messiah who could meet all of their needs and who could satisfy and give them a complete and full life according to themselves, according to what their needs were. But what all of this would add up to again is what we said last time, is that people wanted a kingdom of God on earth, 
a kingdom on earth. And there are people who want to, to do that. You know, we want to bring a kingdom here to this earth. Some would call it utopia. Others call it nirvana. The word of God calls it carnal and worldly living. It's not utopia. A kingdom on earth. There is going to be a thousand year reign of Christ, but he's going to be at the center of it and he's going to be on the throne of David for a thousand years when he comes again with his, with his people, with ten thousands of his saints. But Jesus, when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, he kind of, he, he really emphasizes this issue when he says it in, in, uh, in Matthew 6 verse 19, laid not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And what does Jesus say? And he says, quit trying to have us establish a kingdom for you, speaking of us as the Godhead, but uh, having a kingdom for you here on this earth because you're, you're in this earth, but you're not of this earth. So quit trying to lay up treasures here on earth where things can go wrong, where people can steal from you, where, people, where, where things that you hold precious in this earth are going to just, you know, fritter away. To some extent, we need to realize that we need to put our faith in Jesus Christ and not in the FDIC. You know what the FDIC is, right? You know, this group that kind of controls banking and all of the stuff, you know, that takes place, you know, the insurance part of uh, you know, but hey, how many people lost their fortunes a few years ago to Ponzi schemes and all kinds of other uh, corrupt dealings with, with, uh, with the stock market and all of that? People putting their life savings and putting their trust in stock markets. Yet Jesus says, no, don't lay up your treasures here on earth. Yes, we need to be wise and do the right thing with what we have in the time that we're here. But there also has to be an eternal element to that. Because notice what he says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your heart? Then we'll know where your treasure is. <clears throat> I, I, I've quoted this many times. I'll, I'll just read it again because uh, rep repetition is a, a great teacher. But in, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John says very clearly, and I want you to notice how clear this is, Love not the world, nor or neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, this is not up for some kind of interpretation by people. You know, if I were to say to you, well, can you tell me exactly, or can you tell me what you think John means? I don't have to ask you that. I know what John means. He says very clearly, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do we understand then the word love here? Because if we look at love and hate in the way that Jesus taught it, we realize that we are to love God above all things. And that if we love anything or anyone above that, it is in fact hating God. In the Gospel of Luke, he says a very strong thing. He says, if any man hateth not his father or mother or sister or brother or children or whatever. If you do not hate, you cannot be a disciple of mine. And you're thinking, boy, that's a strong language, but you have to understand what he meant. Jesus meant that God has got to be first in everything that we do. And if we put anybody above him, then we're not, we're not, uh, we're not following after the Lord. God has to be first. You know how many people would rather put their children above God? You need to put God first. And you bring your children under the covering of God. There's a way of doing this right. But it shows the motive of the heart. Love not the world, neither the things of the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is not up for discussion. This is not up for some kind of interpretation. John is very clear under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the three things that destroyed man in the garden, that brought Eve to be deceived by the serpent and brought Adam to be disobedient to God. 
He says, all of this, all that is in the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. Can we, can we say that that's pretty clear? This is as clear cut as it can possibly be. And then he says in verse 17, the world passes away. The world passes away. Whatever you are loving in the world, that's going to pass away. And the lust is going to pass away. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And let's not forget what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, when he says the world, I'm sorry, for they that are after the, th the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Notice the distinction here. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. You know, we're just constantly taking care of those things, and you know, our mind is only on that, rather than having a renewed mind that would consider all of the things of the spirit to be more important. That is why he says in verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death. There's the distinction. There's the line. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's not to say that we're not to take care of the affairs of this life, but it is not to make the affairs of this life greater than the affairs that we are to have in heaven and with God and with Christ. So Jesus then exposed their corrupt hearts and their empty faith. Notice, if you have a corrupt heart, you, then you will have empty faith. He wanted to give them eternal life, but they were thinking on an entirely physical level, even though they should have received what Jesus was saying, because the Father had set his seal upon him, which was a mark of ownership and a guarantee of the contents. And let's remember this, all, the, all things were done by the Father, and Jesus acknowledges that in the Gospel of John. I did not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So then with Jesus telling them this, when he tells them, listen, you, you need to <laughs> seek after, you know, you, you need to labor not for, for, the, uh, for the, the meat that perishes, but you labor for the, the meat which, which uh, brings and endures unto everlasting life, the spiritual things. So here's what their response was to Jesus in John 6, 28. Then said they unto him, what shall we do? What shall we do? They wanted to know what is it that we actually do that we might work the works of God. All right, what do we do? That was their mind. That's the way they thought because that's what they were taught about the law. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Do, 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 do. Don't, 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 don't. What do we do that we might work the works of God? Notice verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God. You underline anything in your Bible, underline this. This is the work of God. This is what is to be done. This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. That you believe on him and who he, who he has sent. Now, what is he saying? Well, if you go and read the whole, the whole phrase, this is the work of God, implied is the fact that this is God the Father. This is the work of God, that you believe on him, Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. You believe on him. That's the work of God. Now that, that doesn't sit with what do I do? It says you believe. You trust. You put your full weight of dependency upon him. That's totally different than the way the world works, isn't it? You want something in the world, you got to do something. You want something in legalistic terms, in legalistic religious terms, you got to do something. I'm not saying that Christians are to just sit back and do nothing. What I am saying is that this is the most crucial aspect of our faith in Christ. I want you to think of all the millions of gods that the Hindus embrace. They embrace millions of gods. They don't even know their names. Can you, can you think of million things that you can name? They can't even name their own gods. Maybe a few, a handful. 
The Buddhists, the Buddhists have their eight steps to nirvana. The Baha'i faith has its threefold core beliefs of unity of God, unity of religion, unity of humanity. In fact, what all they believe in is, you know, well, we all have one God, and we all are really just brothers, no matter whether we're Christians or Islam, Islamic or, or whatever, you know. This is, their, this is their, their universal understanding. And then they said that then we're all, unity of humanity means we're all brothers in Christ. There sure are a lot of brothers killing brothers uh, today, aren't there? You understand what's, what's, what's false about all of that? What's foolish about all of that thinking? Islam has its five pillars of, pillars of faith, and even Judaism, they have the law to keep. And yet Jesus said one simple thing. Come unto me. Just come unto me. All you that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to me. The, do, the work of God is to believe on him whom he has sent. Just believe. Believe. Trust. Put your faith in. Come to him. Receive him into your life. Paul puts it this way. It's, a, it's extend, an extended passage, but, but understand the reason here. In Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul talks about Israel. Paul, Paul, Paul talks about the salvation of Israel. He talks about his love for his people. And not just then, but today as well. Okay, let's, let's remember that. God is not done with Israel yet. So all of these th things that he teaches in those three chapters are, are still apply to Israel today. But here in, verse, in, in chapter 10, in these verses, there, there's, a, there's a tremendous statement that we need to take to heart that he gives, but, but we have to set it up from the very beginning of this chapter. So he says, for, oh, I'm sorry, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So in using Israel as an example here, he says, for I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they have a zeal for God. They have a, a, a desire for God. They have, you know, they have a heart that burns for God. But he says, not according to knowledge. Now, this is coming from the person who calls himself the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Jew of the Jews, uh, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, uh, a member of the Sanhedrin. I mean, this comes from the guy who was the top Jew of all, life, of all time. And he says, but they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They've had the word of God, but they haven't really applied it properly. So he says, to, uh, for they being ignorant, here's where he clarifies, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. There it is. Going about to establish their own righteousness. What is it that I must do? How many times did Jews come up to Jesus, who was a Jew, by the way, and they would come and say, what must I do? This was their thinking. And so they were going about to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, which means he is the goal. He's the, he's the very uh, finish line of, of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Notice, to everyone that believeth. But then it says, for Moses describeth the righteousness which is, the, which is of the law, certainly because the law was given through Moses, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend from the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh unto thee, or the word is nigh thee, which means near thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. Now here, if you want to understand what the true word of faith is, listen in verse 10, 9 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If you confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But notice the next verse. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. With the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But let's not stop there. Look at the next verse. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Whoever believeth on him. Not whoever does this, this, and this. Whoever believeth, trusts, 
completely puts his full weight of dependency upon him shall not be ashamed. Are you getting it now? Are you getting where we've been here so far with these people that wanted to force Jesus into being a king? What we see here in this passage is a great promise that we have in Jesus. We have a great promise in Jesus. But notice, though, that in these verses in our text, that the people are still thinking on the physical level, trying to work their way into heaven. And Jesus tells them that the only work that is needed to be saved is believe on him and put their faith in him. Now, we've already seen what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says. Right? You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of words, lest any man should boast. Well, let's look at a few other things. In Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, Paul says to Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, that which is really just being born again of the Spirit of God and, re and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, poured out his Holy Spirit upon us, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Another great promise given to believers. And then it, is, it says in verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Now, do you notice the, the order here? Everything is about order. It isn't what do I do so that I can believe or be saved, I should say. Now it is, this is what happens when you trust in the Lord and you believe it says that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works, which means now because you're a believer, now you do things. You do things unto the Lord. You do them as, as, as works unto God to give honor and glory to the Lord. You don't do works to be saved. You do works because you are saved. Got the point? And then it says these things are good and profitable unto men. So we have to get the order right. Romans 6, 23, let's not forget this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. I mean, you get paid for sin. Isn't that a wage? I mean, you, right, the wages of sin. You live your life, you know, being dead spiritually, and you go on and you build up all of these things. And the wages of that sin being separated from God is death, but the, death, but the free gift of God. Literally, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And how does it come? It comes because we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that he's risen from the dead. So lastly now, and I'm going to do this as quickly as I can, but lastly, after the um, recognizing of, of the type of hunger that they were expressing and, and, and then of course the uh, uh, revealing of their motives what Jesus has to do is review history he has to review the history because sometimes there's so much revisionist history going on today in the world people we, we don't even know where we came from sometimes you watch people you watch tv today and they, they are asking people on the street you know who the president of the United States is who's this guy they show pictures they don't even know Man, this, this society has been dumbed down for, for political correctness. And I, I, I could speak about three hours on that today, but I'm not going to because we got to get back for tonight's you know, worship and stuff. And, and I need you guys to go eat something and, and you know, re rest and come on back for that. But we could talk hours about that because, man, I tell you what, that's destroying this nation today. But again, that's another matter. I better hurry up. Okay. Reviewing history, let's, let's get there. John 6, verses 30 through 33. They said it therefore unto him. Okay, now they're saying something else to Jesus. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe? Whoa. Did you hear what they just said? Give us proof. Give us another sign. You mean feeding 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish is not enough sign? You mean hearing the story about Jesus walking on the water over in the storm over to the boat and saving his guys and bringing them to shore is not enough of a sign? Yes, yeah, show us another sign. 
And then it says, that we may see and believe thee. Have you heard the statement, seeing is believing? Y'all have heard that, right? That's the world. That's the world. Seeing is believing. And, many, and then they ask him, what does thou work? What, show us, what do you do? Uh, all right. our, uh, they go on. Our fathers did eat man in the desert, as it is written. Now see, it comes all back to bread again. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, the understanding here is, of course, that God gave the people bread. But what's in the mind of the people? If you were to, were to ask them then, who was it that gave you bread? Who would they say? Moses. Moses. Notice what Jesus says to them in verse 32. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, truthfully, truthfully, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. So he's already revealing what their hearts has in, the, in, 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 in their thinking. He says, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven. Now I know that this study is entitled the bread of uh, the bread uh, yeah the bread of life. Now by the way, uh, we haven't gotten to that verse yet. That's why this is part one of a little bit longer study. But that's saying it, isn't it? The bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven. He's speaking of himself. He says, I'm the bread of life. And he giveth life unto the world. The people are demanding proof of Jesus. He's already shown them who he is. That's why they responded in wanting to make him king. He just made also some very phenomenal claims. He claimed to be the son of man in verse 27. And if you follow through from verse 27 on... He claimed to be the son of man. He claimed to be the one who feeds man, who gives man bread, which issues forth eternal life. He claimed to be the one whom God sealed. He claimed to be the one whom God had sent into the world. And he claimed to be the one whom men were to believe. And this brings up something else interesting about man. Because along with man focusing on the physical and material, he also demands that he first see, then he will believe. But that is contrary to true faith. It is not the way faith works. A man must first believe and then he sees. A man must first believe and then he sees. We're going to see later on, after Jesus has risen from the dead, after he's died on the cross, was buried and, was, and arose from the dead, and he meets with his disciples a few days later. One disciple was not there. His name is Thomas, and uh, eventually shows up. Just to make a long story short, you all know the story, the account. Jesus appears among his disciples, and he has to tell them, fear not, it's me. And Thomas, who had all along been saying, unless I put my hand in his hands, his scars, and his side, I won't believe. In other words, Thomas says, I've got to see to believe that he's risen. So Jesus appears to his disciples, and he turns to Thomas. And he says, Thomas, put your hand here and in my side. But what does Thomas do? He falls before Jesus. And he can only say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are they who have not seen, yet believe. This is the Christian faith. It isn't about seeing to believe, it is about believing with faith and trust. 
to see the things of God. When we came to Jesus and he, he changed our life so much and we, we knew it. We, we knew that our life was different and our life was changed. We had a new heart, a new, uh, a new attitude, a new way of seeing things. Everything changed in our life. Then we began to see the things of God. Well, faith must precede sight. That principle, of course, is seen throughout Scripture, but I want you to consider a few things. And we're going to close with this. Do it as quick as I can. Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5. We'll start there. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Now, when you delight in the Lord, there, there is a, 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 an implied faith here. You, you trust the Lord, so you delight in Him. You trust Him so much that you are just so filled with joy. And, and you want to express that. So, so delight in the Lord, it says, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. So it begins with trust and faith, and then he gives you the desires of your heart. You see after you believe, in essence. But notice the next verse. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Committing thy way unto the Lord means you are putting the full weight of your life, of your trust, of your faith, of your dependency upon him, that is what it means to commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and then he shall bring things to pass. You believe, now you shall see. So you got the principle? All right, I want to remind you of two events of great importance in the history of Israel. The first was immediately after the exodus from Egypt when Moses did lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, and, was, and they were on their way to the promised land. But early on, Pharaoh would tell his armies after the children of Israel had left that they were to pursue them and to kill them out in, in, in the wilderness. So here comes the, the armies of Pharaoh pursuing the children of Israel and then they arrive at the, at the Red Sea and, and now they're, they're seemingly hemmed in. With that in mind, what do we hear and see in Exodus 14 verses 13 and 14? It says, And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I want, to, I want to encourage you to understand that when he says, fear ye not and stand still, that that is the encouragement to trust in the Lord. It is the encouragement to believe God and to trust in God. Stand still. Stand still in your faith. Stand still in your trust in the Lord. And when you stand still knowing that God is with you, knowing that God has a purpose for you, you will see the salvation of the Lord. And notice what he goes on to say. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Stand still. You're going to see the salvation of the Lord. One last event took place during the reign of Jehoshaphat the king of Judah and the children of Judah who were surrounded by the armies of three enemies Moabites, Ammonites and the people of Mount Seir the Edomites surrounded by these three armies and it brought them to their knees and they, they, and they, they sought the Lord they prayed unto God they were fearful and God spoke through a prophet to Jehoshaphat and the children of Israel, of the children of Judah. And in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17, it says, and I want you to notice the similarity to what was said to Moses. It says, you shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still. Set yourselves, stand still. And what? And see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Practically the same statement, but it's the order that matters. Stand still. Trust in the Lord. Believe in the Lord. Put your dependency upon the Lord and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. In fact, the battle belongs to the Lord. Stand still. Trust. Believe.
This was the message to those people who had seen Jesus give them bread from a little boy's lunch. The disciples also. Remember, they were the first ones tested. How are we going to feed all these people? How much money do we have? Oh, Lord, we don't have enough. But they had the Lord. Boy, did they fail a lot of pop quizzes. Do we fail as many? Because we don't trust the Lord? I hope we don't fail. I hope we will remember the wonders of God's love for you. He does love you with an everlasting love. And even, even when there's a seeming absence, just because we don't feel, that doesn't mean he's not there. Because we don't live our lives dependent upon feelings. We live our life dependent upon Christ. And we put our trust solely in him. Let's start doing that today. Let's start trusting the Lord. Amen? You made it. I made it too. But I do have to say, I am a little late. That's okay. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for giving us the opportunity, Lord, to gather today to prepare ourselves, Lord God, for this evening when we can gather and worship you and uh, enjoy the time and the season to see our children sing and praise you, Lord, uh, in this wonderful season. I pray, Father, that uh, we will take this week and, uh, and take every opportunity this week to, to let people know about Jesus to encourage people's hearts because this is at times even though it is supposed to be a joyous time we look around the world and there's not much joy in the world and there's a lot of uh, disappointed depressed people sometimes even in the church I pray Father that those who should know you should remember these things that we study today to really trust in you Lord God not in the circumstances that surround us, but Lord, in the very special way that you have shown us that you are always faithful even when we're not. We ask you, Lord God, to have your way with us through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the wisdom of your word. Strengthen our hearts today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Shall we stand?